coming up on Life is a Festival. This concept of free love, it's, it's sort of an abbreviated concept because what they really mean is love free of fear, violence, and lies. Love is free anyway, right? We don't pay for love. It's just, it's a state of being. It's something that we exchange as beings. This idea that a free love community can exist, it's a community that's committed to love free of fear, violence, and lies. And so that's a baseline foundation for them. That manifests as telling the truth and manifests as mutual support and manifests as transparency. So it then creates a code of ethics by which people are living by and creating a whole culture around. Free love is actually, it doesn't mean that you have to go and sleep with everybody or multiple people. What you do is you are committed to living your truth in love and living what is healing for love. Festivals, be they modern celebrations, mystical ceremonies, or rites of passage, are a time to come together and connect with our humanity and with each other. This podcast is about what we learn when we open our hearts to infinite play, and also how we integrate these lessons we learn into our daily lives. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Can free love save the world? Okay. Now, maybe that's the most cringeworthy San Francisco thing ever, but hear me out. There's this place in Portugal called Tamara, and it's known as a global peace village or a healing biotope. And the people of Tamara, they've been there since the 1970s, originally from Germany. And what they believe is that love free from fear and violence is the root of any system change. I've been pretty fascinated by this place since I first heard about it from my friend Ian McKenzie, who's one of my guests on the podcast today. Ian McKenzie and his co-director, Julia Marianska, have been creating a film called Love School, which is about Tamara's radical work in healing love and sex. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about Tamara and Tamara's work, um, particularly this powerful ritual called the Forum. And um, what Ian wrote about the Forum is a strange and wonderful place of inviting individuals into a shared space to be facilitated in a performance of their inner world. This raw and powerful ritual enables the ability to disidentify with their personal issue and see it as a collective issue within a wider cultural context. So we're talking about free love. Is that polyamory? Well, essentially, it's about love free from fear and free from coercion. And that can look like open relating. It can also look like monogamy. But essentially, it's a deep process of divorcing love. Oh, funny word. (laughs) It's a deep process of just changing how we think about love. So we talk about love love free from fear. We talk about jealousy and how jealousy is not love. And we talk about a radical commitment to community. So on the podcast, we have Ian McKenzie. Um, I once did a speaking tour on masculinity with him in Australia. It was an American and a Canadian teaching Australians about what it means to be a man. I mean, what could go wrong? 
But that's a story for another time. Ian is a filmmaker. He's a writer and an activist who has spent over 10 years tracking and amplifying stories of emergent culture. Um, If you are not familiar with him, his films include Occupy Love, about the Occupy movement, Amplify Her, about women in electronic music, and now Love School. Julia is also a filmmaker, and her work reimagines how we look at women's bodies, relationships, and our approach to sensuality through video poetry. Um, and she has uh, another wonderful film called Union and a photographic project called Sensual Surrealism. We got to give a shout out to their co director, John Wolfston, who was not on the podcast today, but he is missed and he is with us in spirit. Finally, if today's podcast lights up your imagination, um, the crew are crowdfunding to complete the film. And so if you would like to learn more about Tamara, if you'd like to support their work, if you'd like to help other people become more familiar with these radical concepts of free love healing the world, please consider supporting their work on Love School, the film, on Kickstarter. Um, And that will be in the show notes. So without further ado from this long preamble, I give you Julia and Ian. I am here in sweaty Sebastopol, and I am here with Julia. Please pronounce your last name for me again. <laughs> Marianska. Marianska. Slides off the tongue. Julia Marianska. And also Ian McKenzie. Hi, Ian. Mm-hmm. Hi, Amy. This is Julia. You're in my first time meeting, mm-hmm. and Ian and I know each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I am thrilled because I am so interested in Tamara. And you have both put together or are in the process of putting together a film. And it's specifically about the Tamara Love School Mm -hmm. or Tamara, the entire Tamara Mm -hmm. uh, community. I mean, that's an interesting distinction because we were invited to participate in the Love School, which is a 10-day immersion within the community and particularly in their research in love and sexuality. Um, but we realized in the course of making the film, which initially started as a, a sort of play-by-play of being in the love school, we then realized it was you know, more broadly effective to actually treat um, the journey of the watching the film, experiencing the film, as a whole love school unto itself. So that the experience at Tamara is the love school that the audience is then brought, drawn into. So could this podcast be an experience of a love school can we do that julia i think we can do our best to okay yeah to bring in the spirit of the love school yeah well this this um dovetails with my first question that i always ask for any podcast which is what would make this podcast a home run for Mm -hmm. you both Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. great question Mm -hmm. you know i think that if we successfully have you at the end of the podcast fully getting what it is that the love school is about and not just on the surface level of sure we all on some level want love and we all want sex but to understand the more holistic concept of it how it has to do with the political revolution of our times that would be the home run Mm. i might add as well that um part of the practicing of the love school, or what we learn in the love school, is to align with Eros. And we'll probably speak about that in the podcast. But that, you know, both Julie and I as collaborators, as former lovers, as um, now in this moment, you know, speaking with you, 
if we can also uh, bring in and and embody and um, liberate what wants to come through in the spirit of life and service to life, then I also think that could be a home run. So what you're saying is that we can effectively model some of the experience of the love school in the process of this conversation and therefore allow me to understand deeply what the love school intends to achieve beyond simply the conceptual idea of a healing of the relationship between genders as a political movement and actually perhaps even feel it in my own body and experience. And then that's the win. Mm-hmm. Well, let's yeah. do it. Lucky, lucky me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fasten your safety belts. Um, okay. So we're going to need to start by defining some terms. So um, there are lots of hippie communes. There are lots of cool places where people are trying to do cool things. Um, Tamara is in Portugal. Mm-hmm. It was founded in 1978. Eight, 1978, and still going strong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we hear about a lot of these communes. They dissolve into murder and mayhem and suicides, mass suicides. I mean, that's obviously not the norm, but um, <laughs> Tamara has kept its vibe. Uh-huh. And can, which I'd like to know about how that happened at some point in the conversation, but can you start by locating us in Portugal with the Germans, Yazevo Germans? Mm-hmm. This is the Germans who came to Portugal mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. sh- this fabulous love school. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so Tamara actually started um, largely from the meeting of three people, uh, Dieter Doom, Sabine Lichtenfels, and Charlie Rainier. And when they got together in an initial project in Germany, they initially found that, you know, hey, we want to do this thing together, create this, you know, utopian alternative. And then they realized immediately, of course, how challenging it was to actually live together with other human beings without like, all, this stu- all the same stuff coming up. And so in some sense, I feel that's when the pivot happened with like, hey, let's do this thing. Let's build this community or university. And they realized, oh, wait, but first we have to figure out how to live together. And that was the shift. And the experiment started with just 10 people living in a house. And so they discovered very quickly that within that, if they didn't address the issues of love and sexuality, they would be perpetuating the same thing that they experienced the previous generation do, which is essentially hit a dead end, right? Because there was that hippie movement with the free love and all that. But so many people crashed and burned from that experience and got um, kind of flung to 180 degree other end and ended up uh, not believing that that could be true without getting hurt. Yeah, the road to utopia is strewn with burnt out hippies <laughs> right i mean and, and that's the lesson that we get in the with the yuppies is yeah. that the hippie movement was idealistic and then everybody kind of woke up and realized that the world was really sinister and nefarious and that we just needed to like accumulate as much as many things as mm-hmm. possible and that was really and then we you know and- yeah and i do want to not skirt too that largely or say the other factor that was happening was the controversies that was happening, I think, around other communities around the time that were failing in Germany as well. And Tamara got uh, kind of roped into a lot of the controversies where, you know, you, you do such edgy stuff um, with close proximity to, you know, a culture that itself is like, you know, you touch these places, it can be very uh, hostile to you. It touch these places, what places? Well, these places of like liberating sexuality and um, the ways in which, you know, they kind of uh, would unearth and actually kind of point to these really deep places of like trauma and wounding in the culture. And so largely they became the subject of a lot of um, 
slander and eventually that, or that was one of the reasons as well that was like look we have to be able to go elsewhere to a place where there's a bit more space where we can really you know conduct the research in a in a bit more of a protected environment i think a a good inroad to tamira would and to the value of the work being done there as we get into these concepts would be to actually talk about your individual journeys to mm-hmm. Tamara. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian, you and I have known each other for a while, and I'm familiar with your journey to Tamara because you're the reason I know about Tamara. Mm-hmm. Julia, I, I'm not as sure about how you got there. I know that you were at one point involved in uh, the One Taste community, mm-hmm. which is an interesting parallel to Tamara. So that's that's really interesting to talk about. Um, so I'd, I don't know if that where that fits in with the story for you. And yeah. you've been involved in activism in various ways in your life. So can you set the tone for... Yeah how Tamara came into your life? Yeah, sure. So um, let's see. So I'm a California transplant, if you will. Is that what we call ourselves? I, would, I didn't grow up here. But when I moved to the West Coast in 2010 or 11, I moved directly into a community in San Francisco called One Taste. So for those that are not familiar with it, it's a an intentional community focused around a partnered practice of orgasmic meditation. And that community was the first intentional community experience that I'd ever had. And it was intense. Yes. Very, very focused on the, on the unearthing of uh, layers of repression that we might have on sexuality and how to come into more feeling and more um, being more sensate as human beings, both of all genders, essentially. Um, and and or- orgasmic meditation, also called oming, yeah. would you mind describing what that is? Yeah, it's a partnered practice in which um, any person of any gender strokes a female clitoris for 15 minutes. Um, and it's a very simple practice. You wouldn't stroke any harder than you would stroke your own eyelid. And it has a very clear start and stop point. And the point is only to feel. And so part of what one taste talks about is that orgasm is not climax it's the moment that you enter into the involuntary state oh okay i'm <laughs> i got your attention <laughs> yeah the process of learning about love is already happening i that's a beautiful description because so much about sex and and the focus on the orgasmic finish line and achievement and success is a lot about like did you come? Did I make you come? Am I good enough to make right. you come? Totally. It's all about that end goal. And so here was a community that I found myself in that was exploring this terrain. And of course, from there, living in San Francisco, I learned about Burning Man. And I went to Burning Man for the first time. And I was um, at Camp Mystic, where I had camped for several years since that first time I'd gone. And um, I was listening to someone on stage and I remember Daniel Pinchbeck responding to a person on stage saying, well, if you're interested in community, blah, 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 have you heard about Tamara? And it just piqued my interest. And that was 2012. And so I'd been kind of holding that in my awareness, like, okay, there's this place and I knew that they did work around love and sexuality and I knew that they did a lot more than that as well. I'd I'd like to offer, however you feel comfortable, as we talk about Tamara, um, to maybe bring in a little bit about the contrast with the One Taste community in terms of sustainability in communities built around sexual exploration and open relating, um, because I think that there 
are some really interesting parallels there. Not that we need to get into it now, but just an invitation for the future, whatever your insight is about that. Mm -hmm. I haven't been a part of that community, obviously, but I know it and I know certain aspects of its reputation that I think might inform our conversation at some point. Yeah, that's a great point. And there are a lot of distinctions to make between those communities. So I think the first distinction I want to say is that at the time I lived there, it was still kind of very much in the first stages before it had gone sort of global and turned into a giant enterprise. Um, And so it really was a sense of, there was a sense of community in that in that iteration that I was a part of, there were about 50 people living in 30 rooms um, in a converted hotel in Soma in San Francisco. And a lot of what the practice and the community, the community was centered around orgasmic meditation. And it was just that. So it wasn't about let's plant a garden and let's do all these other things. But it did have Uh, a map for relating based on that practice that included ways to communicate, ways to deal with fear, ways to approach desire, ways to understand. um, Yeah. A lot of things related to sexuality and it was very focused on the individual, right? So it often, often what happened was people were just very encouraged to go very deep into themselves Whereas I feel like when I approached Tamara and their work, it was so much about, sure, be in your be in your individual story, um, or I wouldn't even call it that. When I first approached Tamara, it was be in your story in service of the collective healing. And so that's where I was so transformed in that first experience of the Love School in Oakland with the forum practice. Because I witnessed person after person coming into the center and speaking to their own um, trials, tribulations, desires, fears about love and sexuality. But it was it was always linked to a greater, more universal frame. And it was held in a context of collective healing. And that wasn't something that I felt fully at one taste. Ian, you wrote recently in an article about this experience of the forum. And what you wrote was a strange and wonderful process of inviting individuals into a shared space to be facilitated in a, quote, performance Mm -hmm. of their inner world. Mm -hmm. This raw and powerful ritual enables the ability to disidentify with their personal issue and see it as a collective issue within a wider cultural context. Mm -hmm. This is so juicy for me You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in my healing, my mm-hmm. trauma, the my hero's journey. And the 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 pivot point of the hero's journey, as I've read it, particularly through the mythopoetic men's movement, which mm-hmm. we've talked about, mm-hmm. is the idea of actually the slaying of the dragon is the slaying of yourself. Mm-hmm. And the key to the hero's journey is the boon back to the community. Mm-hmm. So this journey you go on for yourself, as you were describing in the One Taste community, it's about this inward work and about you know, or whether I'm doing Vipassana or whether I'm doing, you know, ayahuasca or whatever, there's my narrative, my story, my healing, my mommy, my daddy, my things that went wrong. I'm sorry, that's not to denigrate that. I have those things too. I have a mommy and a daddy. Um, (laughs) um, But this idea that you can disidentify with a personal issue by it being a collective issue and that your working of your personal issue is in service to the collective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as liberating and also perhaps in some ways kind of an antidote in a sense to our 
mm-hmm. you know, myopic, self-consumed, personal journey, voyage mm-hmm. thing that we so often find ourselves on, mm-hmm. as I've done. Mm-hmm. I could say more. I'd like you to say yeah. more, and this might tee up your journey to Tamara uh-huh. as well, sure. if you feel it does. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could bounce back and then reapproach Forum as well. Um, I came to Tamara. Well, they first invited me because they saw a film I'd done uh, called "The Revolution Is Love" with the fellow Charles Eisenstein. On the- is he a member of that community? Because I uh, saw him. He's in the new film. Yeah, uh, they, he attended a love school. Yeah, oh, nice. with his partner Stella. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, he's featured somewhat in the film. Um, and uh, but they initially invited myself, um, having already connected with John, who was you mentioned, who's the other filmmaker in our trio. Uh, and they said, you know, hey, would you like to come and see what we were doing with love and sexuality here? I think you'd be in- intrigued by it. And for me, I was just you know one email of many, and I didn't really um, notice it at the time beyond oh, that's interesting. Um, and it was a couple of years later um, when my marriage ended uh, for different reasons, and largely a lot of themes that then became very clear to me once I uh, went to Tamara. But basically, that was the moment I thought, okay, you know, in the aftermath of like deep heartbreak, um, I need to understand love more. And so that was the time I went, 2015, after John and I raised some funds to do a short film about the community. And we headed there. We attended the Global Love School. And it was day two, actually, when I experienced the forum for the first time. And I mean, one way to understand it, I think, is that, um, you know, they have this deep understanding that the so many of us have these two worlds right we have the inner world and we have the outer world and in largely in the culture as most of us experience we're not really allowed to show the inner world uh, or maybe if it can come out in ways that you know but most people aren't quite you know don't know how to handle it or deal with it or perhaps have to pretend um, often because it's a way to feel like okay i'll get love or i'll be accepted and if people really knew who i was or my thoughts you know, I'd be out of the tribe. Like there's these really base existential fears that many carry. And so with Tamara, they decided like, look, what if it's, let's just stop pretending, but let's create the spaces where that inner world can actually be experienced and expressed. And largely too about, you know, lines that we have with others that, you know, can often run the show unless they're actually given a space in order to be expressed, witnessed, seen, facilitated. And this is the can question. St- sure. Can yeah. I stop you for a second? Lines with others. Can you describe a little more clearly what you mean by that, that, that yeah, need yeah. to be expressed in a certain way? Yeah. It's this question for me of, you know, you, any relationship, right? That there's uh, often what, you know, you, you tell the person and then everything else you think about them or, you know, will never tell them or want to tell them but don't or, or attractions to them or, you know, there's just so much going on. And so, in, especially in a community, of course, there's so much going on between so many people. And often without the proper uh, spaces for these things to be expressed, made visible, um, they, this is what ends up taking down communities. So we're back again to that idea of why did so many utopian experiments fail? Um, they understood it's because this inner world was never properly you know, excavated and held in a collective process where it could be seen, moved through, and actually create more trust in a community instead of take it down. And so Forum for me was the first time I saw the, you know, this happening. And I was like, what is this? And, mm. and uh, I was actually the third, <clears throat> the third person that, quote, performed that, that day. And I called it performance more as a kind of invitation, not to fake it, you know, as we think performance might be, but just to, again, be playful, to, to not, you know, kind of grip it so tightly of what your issue is, but to be able to play it, you know, for example, like, what does it mean? For, what is anger to you in this moment? Like, play it out. Or what is to be the archetype of the hero? You know, play it out in the middle with facilitation that can guide you. So, you don't get stuck in your own story too much, right? Or stuck in the head. 
you know this, but we've just met. Um, I have a transgender element of my psychology that only I can only experience through fantasy. And it doesn't show up as attraction to people in the world. It's just, I don't, it doesn't really show up in the world. My partner is aware of it. And I'm very open about that. There's this aspect of me and part of my, Oh, my healing, my journey has been like, you know, how do, what am I doing with this part of me that has these longings that exist Mm -hmm. in fantasy? Mm -hmm. And what you told me was go to love school and go to the forum and do the thing. And I have not done that yet, but maybe by the end of this conversation, (laughs) I will have a renewed effort. So just for the, for the listeners thinking about this idea of a forum, the way that I first heard it was, um, an opportunity to express deep longings in a ritualized fashion without the consequences of identity and crossing thresholds that it feels like in the, in the outside world for me, Mm -hmm. where I don't want, I don't feel like a trans person. I don't want to make a huge step into some other space. And I don't even necessarily understand what this expression of me calls for. Mm -hmm. And the forum, as you described it and are describing it now, sounds like an invitation to perform that aspect of self and maybe, as you said, disidentify with it as something that may be of service to the collective. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to speak to that because Mm. there is a way that the... there's a way that the forum really only makes sense in community. Mm-hmm. Mm. And outside of a community context, what could happen is that without a larger frame holding the people together, we could still very much easily go into our mm-hmm. downward spirals of our individual stories. And so, for example, if you were to step into the center with a story of like, oh, woe is me, I have this part and I need healing, whatever, like however you are relating to that, it might still live that way even as you play it out. However, if you are in a context of community that's committed to uh, seeing and unearthing what the society has suppressed and to come together in a context of healing across the gender spectrum, then let's say you automatically, just because of the field that's being held, get lifted up and out of an individual story knowing that you reveal something in yourself in service to a greater collective. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I feel like um, I love the story of Hanuman, uh, the monkey king, monkey god, monkey king. Mm-hmm. Is he a king? Maybe he was a king later. But he forgot his power because he was reckless and remembered his power in service of Ram. And then he was able to drum, jump to Lanka to, um, to, to find Sita for Ram. But part of the story of, of Hanuman's devotion is this idea that the great strength is, is found in service. Mm-hmm. And perhaps you know part of that story in terms of this collective performance of self in the service of the collective is that maybe the firepower you need to really go the distance and alchemize these disparate parts of yourself, maybe that could only happen in the crucible of, of a community for which you are avatar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, sound epic? <laughs> am, yeah. I, am I hyping it too much? Is everyone going to go well, to Tamara? Well, and, or is it yeah. maybe yeah, it's yeah. subtler? Why can Well, I just want to say one piece, which is that there's this added element of the fact that when you are in community with others, they are then automatically um, invested in reflecting back to you what you might not be able to see yourself. And so in that way, you know, we're not just getting together for a weekend workshop to do some personal excavation. We go home all healed. But 
let's say if we're actually living in community, real issues are coming up all the time, daily, many times a day. And then it's it's a practice of building trust with others to reveal yourself and allow them to give you a reflection. And so in that way, it creates this um, indebtedness and, and embedment with one another. So a question about community then. The love school is something that you can attend as an outsider. So then how are you in community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the love school was generated f- for a very specific reason, which one was because they realized that they had, you know, all of this research now. And the way they share is that they traveled around all these conferences, right? And they would be speaking about what, you know, what they're doing um, in Tamara, because they do, for example, really profound work with water retention landscapes and permaculture. With what? Water retention landscapes. Water retention landscapes. Okay. Yeah. Permaculture, um, you know, they build blueprints for like refugee settlements. Like they do, like the love and sexuality piece is, is one of a larger mandala of what they do. And they, and they call it a peace village or a peace uh, research? Healing, healing biotope. Healing biotope. Yeah, okay. which is part of a larger vision, which we could probably get to a bit later. Um, but just to say that they're at these conferences and saying, you know, here's what we're doing with you know, water retention and new technologies. And then people would be like, yeah, yeah, it's great. And then in between, like in the hallways, you know, they'd other people would stop them, like great, you know, visionary leaders and activists. And they'd say, oh, yeah, but tell us about the love thing. Like, what's going on with the love thing? And so it was such a like obvious thing for them to say, oh, wait, I guess this is important because... Everybody keeps telling us that you know there's no place for it out in the in the activist world and the you know um, the world where again like the same level of suppression the same level of the hidden inner world you know especially a lot of activists suffer from burnout of this kind of well we got to give it all to the cause but their own lives are in shambles you know they understood that actually those two need to be they need to come together and but they need to come together in uh, a community again, that is all committed to deep system change, of which that is like their, it's their North Star. So I'm still unclear on how, if you are attending Tamara for a 10-day mm-hmm. immersion, mm-hmm. that then puts you in a village environment that is Tamara. Mm-hmm. I understand that they have developed technologies by living in community with each other, and I definitely want to really talk about what free love means in the context yeah, of Tamara, yeah. and what what they're whispering in the corridors about the love yeah. thing, because I don't think we've properly expressed that here yet. Yeah. But I still don't get how you're in community if you're yeah. just attending the love school. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so the invitation, at least as well, when we were first offered it, was um, it's much closer to a vision quest or some kind of you know, immersion within this field. Also, again, knowing that it's in, generally it's 10 days and that it is about... Um, coming into a, an, an existing field that is supported actually by the community. So there's quite a number of communal mem- community members that are participants and, and uh, in a level of support with these global allies and activists and artists and uh, leaders that are now able to come to a place and actually experience um, through that field and the way that it's held a level of, you know, personal, you know, revelation and um, integration and healing for that time. And they understand that it is a ongoing process. Like for example, I've been four times now, Julie has been three. And so it's similar to, you know, everything that happens then really has its way with you for the rest of the year. And then you return again to like deepen one more time. And, and I think I recall that you have to do an introduction session before, because I wanted to go to the love school mm-hmm. and you're like, we can't just go to love. You have to first do an introduction yeah. where you're connecting and understanding the community first, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. there's some level of initiation before, before yeah. going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the love thing, mm-hmm. obviously, 
you're listening at home and you're like, the love thing that is, I've heard about Tamara or many of you probably have not, but if I've heard about Tamara, I've heard about free love and this idea that free love is is going to save the world. It's falling it's, from the sky. It's falling free from, for it's, everybody. It's free, free love. And <laughs> free love, does that mean polyamory? What is, you know, is that the right word or open relating or non-monogamy? What is free love? Mm-hmm. Well, I love the definition that my friend and collaborator Ida Shibley speaks to. She's a Palestinian Bedouin woman and also featured in the film. And she speaks to this concept of free love. It's, it's sort of an abbreviated concept because what they really mean is love free of fear, violence, and lies, right? So love is free anyway, right? We don't pay for love. It's just, it's a state of being. It's something that we exchange as beings. And so this idea that a free love community can exist, it's a community that's committed to love free of fear, violence, and lies. And so that's a baseline foundation for them. So within that, that manifests as telling the truth and manifest as mutual support and manifest as transparency so it then it it creates a code of ethics by which people are living by and creating a whole culture around so that's where free love is actually it doesn't mean that you have to go and sleep with everybody or multiple people it's that what you do is you are committed to living your truth in love and living what is healing for love. So each person is going to have his, her, or their own track of healing and moving toward what is best in service to that. And that might look like having multiple partners because maybe your upbringing was such that you were really repressed and were not able to explore your longings. And maybe that looks like really deepening in monogamy because you've been all over the place and you've really avoided deep intimacy and now it's time to stay and and deepen. So it's really about upholding, and this is where the community of mirrors supports that each person stays true to their track because they're really listening for each other and saying, you know, like you've been fooling around a lot. Why don't you go monogamous for a year and see how that how that heals you, you know, how that supports you in your love path. Ian, you just uh, published an article that's also pointing to supporting the film, um, which is, it's it's called Home is Whenever I'm With You and Other Modern Calamities. Mm-hmm. It's a nice snappy title. And um, you tell a really beautiful story that if you can briefly kind of replicate it here, Mm -hmm. the point that I want to rest on in this moment is your movement from the myth of the one into what you called polyagony Mm -hmm. into this space of a village Mm -hmm. and the ascension through those different, I guess, in some ways, relational developmental stages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think in this culture, certainly you ask most people, uh, what do they consider when you might say, you know, the myth of the one. And most people can come up with, you know, fairly common set of terms, like the one that's meant to complete you, that's meant to be your other half, your soulmate. Um, my person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> She's my person. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> and in many ways, again, it's such a, it is a beautiful thing. And at the same time, you know, every pop song ever sings about this. And yet there's a, 
a kind of less talked about, you know, consequence of that, which is, you know, all of the kind of unconscious projections that go into then trying to find that person or not. And then also um, all of the big energies that actually come through in, in any kind of relationship, especially around, you know, arrows and the deep longing for belonging, which I think so many of us experience because we've haven't grown up with, you know, deep mutual life with other people. And so in a kind of fragmented, often lonely world, trying to find that other one like makes total sense. And, and in your article, you talk about that person as home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that idea that most people too would say um, they wouldn't challenge that assumption or, or that kind of um, characterization. They'd say, yeah, with this person, like, I feel home. And, and again, it, that is, it's beautiful. It's not to knock it, but it's also, again, there's a, there's a kind of consequence when you, if you locate home in another person, uh, what happens when that relationship ends, mm-hmm. as it often does? And for many, as it did for me, I was married for six years. Uh, and when that relationship ended, I literally lost my home. Like I moved out, she stayed, it made a lot more sense for her to do so. And and you and you have to split up your friends and maybe they, they're more social than you, so they get all the friends and you don't. You have to you have to go on your long jo- voyage to grieve and do a whole thing. Mm-hmm. I did that. Drive off with your Vitamix. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I had three things left in my car. It was uh well, you know, the kind of clothes and things, but it was the Nintendo Wii <laughs> and the Vitamix. So um and for me again, from that place, that reactivity I was like, that's it, you know, I'm I'm not going to play into that anymore. I'm going to go the exact opposite, which in this case, and for many often is the open relating, the non-monogamy, the polyamory. And it can it can feel like liberation. I, certainly after a time that has that felt more repressed and more boxed in. And yet what I found, like many do, and this is the polyagony, which is that, you know, all of the same issues that came up in the monogamous relationship just come up times however many, you know, people you're relating with. And so what I realized from that experience and then finally, you know, going to Tamara was I was like, oh, the missing piece is has really little to do with the form of relationship that people are choosing to have, monogamy, polyamory, celibate, whatever. It's not about the form, it's about the vessel. Hmm. It's about needing others to actually hold like the big energies that come up in relating and to mirror lovingly, you know, all of the blind spots, which are, you know, by your very nature, you can't see about yourself, the ways you're relating, why you're choosing people based on, you know, unconscious mother projection or not, or all of these things that, again, are, are heroically impossible for an individual to, to see and to work with. And this is why, again, it, it really becomes a system change at that point, because, you know, the, the longing that many have but can't articulate as well as the willing, the desire to be met in a, in a kind of deep partnership of some kind, you know, a lot of people carry, actually are no longer contradictory. Free love and partnership, as Tamara says, they're not. They're no longer contradictory if the vessel of community is there to hold them. In fact, they complement each other. Wow. <laughs> At the beginning of the podcast, we talked about a home run. Mm. Can you remind me, Julia, what your answer for what a home run podcast would be? <laughs> and it was about me, so I remember it if you don't. <laughs> um, and I, I just want to see how on track we were we are. Mm-hmm. And I want to pair that with what you said earlier, that the viewing of the film takes someone through the love school. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we've talked to some, about Tamara. We've talked about your 
life experiences and we've touched on mm -hmm. open relating into the village. Now I'd like to bring us back on track mm -hmm. to the process of healing around the subject of love in real time via uh, through your film, um, through this conversation. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember what I had said in the beginning, which is that he, I think it would be a home run if by the end of this podcast, you and also those listening could really understand that the issues of love and sexuality that we're talking about have to do with the greater political revolution of our time. I can see how it makes sense conceptually that it points thusly. When I look at Donald Trump, I see a wounded man um, and I see his wounds on profoundly grotesque and obvious display. And in a sense, he's almost the archetype of the overblown American ego and wounded masculine pride. And he's got this, you know, the small hands and it's all about the small hands or, you know, whatever we, and <laughs> so it seems obvious to me that to heal our relationship to love would necessarily mean that we would need less consumption that less destruction of the earth, less conquering of each other, because our own coffers would be full by that love. So I get that as a conscious being. Here's what's hard for me. I fight with my partner. Mm -hmm. You know, and and to your point about the village, you know, our uh, the battles of my partnership are within the competing frames that we each have about what reality is, what we are owed of each other. And um, so... I can conceptually understand this idea of healing of love as a political act, but I don't have access to how I could bring it into my own life. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, this is a question that I was going to save for later in the podcast, but we can't all go to Tamara. No, we can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a thought. Okay, so this is a big, big circle of ideas that I'm going to wrap together in a bundle for you. Which is that, you know, you speak about here you are in a situation where it's you and your partner. Do you live together? We do. So you live together, right? So most often it's one against the other, right? It's you, what you say versus what she says, well, your different preferences. And, and, I, and I would say, and I think it's helpful to make this distinction, it, it isn't really one against the other. It's like we're trying to be on the same team, right. solving a thing where the problem is a different perspective, where we have trouble seeing each other's perspectives, right. and then there's a conflict there. And so, to just to make the distinction that for me, when I using the term poetically to say to battle, it doesn't feel like battle. It just feels like a sort of mm. why is this hard? Mm -hmm. You know. Well, I actually want to take two steps back to you bringing in Donald Trump and linking it to the political issue, right? Because obviously he's a is a very high political figure. Um, we could project a lot onto him and his, all of his issues. <laughs> and one of the one of the things I remember Charles Eisenstein saying once um, in a talk, he was like, you know, think about that white supremacist guy, that guy that like, you know, he's maybe he's like part of the Ku Klux Klan or, you know, he's just a real jerk. But just imagine at one point he was just a little schnookums, you know, <laughs> like at some point he had a mother and he was just a little schnookums. Like, what happened to him? You know, and so I have a different perspective now. I have a, an eight-month-old. And I just have a, 
a perspective from the point of view of how the society is constructed and how it's such a failure. The architecture of our society is a failure for meeting our deepest needs. So for example, most people live in um, nuclear families or isolated situations such as you described you and your partner, and you're trying to be on the same team, you're trying to make it work. And even in the best case scenario, people really struggle. So um, I think about how the earliest parts of our life inform what kind of attachment we form, right? And at best, if a mother is supported, and she can um, spend good time with that child to form that good bond, hallelujah, right? A lot of people don't have that luxury. They need to go straight to work because our society doesn't create that support system. And we don't have the village of support. Maybe you have family nearby, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandma, grandpa that can come take the baby. And yet here we are still in a struggle because we live in a capitalist society that is asking us to constantly produce and go, go, go. So here we are and the the dismantling of the village where we don't have that circle of trust and support. Not only do we not get our base, most basic needs met, we can't even start to think about that circle of trust, right? It, it almost now, when we look at it this way, it feels like a luxury to think, okay, how am I going to think about love and sexuality when I can't pay my bills and I've got to raise my kids and get them to school and all this kind of stuff that most people are thinking about? But when you break it down and look all the way to the core issue, it's like, wow, the society architecture is broken. And so to look at the fact that fundamentally, maybe from day one, we're not getting our needs met. And so as we grow into adulthood, we perpetuate the same problems and we're trying to fill that void with all this other stuff. And so here is a, is a, holistic model and in a way can be like an island of the future right so and and also a beacon into what used to exist in the past when we did live in tribes and so when i think about what's accessible for the for the here and now i just think about wow we have to make those steps we have to take those first steps to build trust with other people so even if you live in an apartment even if you live in your own house what does it take to go next door to the neighbor? What does it take to invite the person that you have uh, a feeling of resonance with into your living room and start to just create that culture of being transparent and really sharing so that when you do need something, you can have those people that you call upon, people that listen for you and your partner. And you're like, all right, if we keep talking, we're just going to keep butting heads. But we bring in a third person. All of a sudden, it's a circle. You know, and then that can flow. It doesn't just ping pong back and forth. So these are the little steps that we can start to take. But we have to understand that the way as it is now, the society and the architecture of how we are set up to live is broken and keeps us isolated and keeps us in these patterns of destruction and violence. The tricky thing in what you've just said is that I live in a city and I can't point to the exact reason why, but I don't really want to talk to my neighbors. I just don't want to. <laughs> nice transparency. It feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there's a neighbor who's behind me and he's the nicest dude ever. He's from Australia. Every time 
I see him, he asks me how my podcast is because it's the only thing he knows about me. Mm-hmm. And he really wants, and he is back there building guitars and I ask him about his guitars. And it's nice, but to me, forwarding that relationship into community feels awkward and forced and not, and it, so the idea that like let's create more organic communal bonds with the people who live with us, I think that many of the listeners at home would hear that and be like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Sounds like a bunch of work. I'm already fighting with this person who I love and want to have sex with. What, what am I going to do with the dude next door who I'm pretty sure is a hoarder? Like, what, am I going to just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, am I going to, who am I going to? Uh-huh. So, and I'm not asking you to solve this particular right. challenge. I just, for me, <sighs> clearly we need like a radical system overhaul. And the nuclear family and these kind of atomized family units from the industrial revolution are awful but much like the fight against climate change the burden on the individual to make small choices in order to change the system that feels overwhelming too Mm -hmm. with that being the case where do you draw hope and where are you you know is it about moving into the country and actually finding an intentional community like Mm -hmm. what is yeah i can speak to that i mean Okay, I'll give you this image. So uh, Tamara's whole vision is based on this idea that if they can essentially create these functional models of community, but a community in a particular way uh, that has essentially removed like domination and coercion from every uh, aspect of relationship, you know, between the human and human, human and the land, human and the animals, like it creates a field, a field of trust that is actually palpable when you go there. Like lots of people go there and they're like, oh my God, I don't know what it is. It just feels different. Yeah, the trust thing I think is a key yeah. aspect here. And so from that vision, they have this idea that um, that in some ways you could call it like, it's a it's like reawakening a memory, right? And this is why we've talked about this idea of village. And certainly there's many places around the world that still live in village, different kinds of village. Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, we also are talking about perhaps those peoples that have lost that memory or it's just such a small ember. Um, but I was reading the story uh, around I was when I was reading the vision. It was on the BBC or something. It was talking about this kid who uh, he had some skin issue where um, his skin had mostly died over his entire body. So um, all that was left was a few healthy patches of skin. And as I'm reading it, I'm kind of like, wow, that's devastating. But I kept reading, and the article was actually saying doctors had been successfully able to transplant some of the healed or the the one way to say it. The skin that still knew how to be itself had transplanted it to other areas of the body. And that had kick-started the memory again of the dead cells and the skin regenerated across his entire being. And those two things collided with, for me, it's this image of reawakening the memory of this older way, but um, in a way calling it forward in places around the world and it like strengthens the memory, they call it the field. And so how that looks, though, again, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody goes to the country, starts a 200-person intentional community. I, for example, though, live up in Canada and in a community home where there's eight of us and are living and practicing these things every day. And I will say that um, it is phenomenal. Uh, All of that stuff you talked about, you know, like, I don't know if I really want to be friends with that person or... Um, will they? Know, what do they think of me if they actually knew me and my habits and things like that? And it's fascinating how, and that's the threshold though that needs to be crossed in order to actually give, I think, any possibility of a regenerative future. 
like I am utterly convinced that the future has to be collective. There's no other way. How do you hope and believe that the film that you have been making will forward the process you've just described of mm -hmm. reestablishing healthy skin across this great, beautiful earth? Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, one simple way is that we can't build what we haven't imagined. Mm -hmm. And so to create a visual representation through this film, which is a very powerful medium, um, we have the capacity to illuminate people's imagination, to even start to think about what that kind of change can look like. Mm. This relates too to this understanding of the erotic, because you know, with this understanding that eros is life energy, and uh, this uh, Charles Eisenstein, I think we mentioned, he had this line from his book where he said that you know it's in the nature of life to want to make more life, and that's really the definition of eros that we work with that. Eros wants to flow, and currently there are so few visions of what's possible um, that we, you know, would want to live into. There's lots of dystopian possibilities, you know, zombie apocalypses and things like that. And in that sense, you could call, you could feel like the energy that wants to flow into these possibilities, like, has nowhere to go. This energy, so this tension is actually just kind of pooling. But with the possibility of actually offering up possible visions of the of a healed future it allows that energy to be unlocked and actually begin to work towards creating that change do you know of any other communities or experiments similar to tamara that are successfully achieving some of these goals mm -hmm. i mean i'd say there's hundreds if not thousands of different eco villages around the world you know global global eco village network is a great way to plug in I mean, some have different energy, or some gifts though, like um, Dominher, I think in Italy, you know, they have different, you know, they talk with plants and they do all this really amazing, you know, futuristic stuff that, again, that feels like it's their strength. And, you know, I know there's communities in Kenya and Brazil that actually Tamara has relationships with. And right here in the United States, there's uh -huh. the farm in Tennessee, there's Twin Oaks, there's, there's a lot of different and there's our eco village. I mm -hmm. think it's in up up in BC, mm -hmm. right? But 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 none that emphasize this healing of gender relationships and healing of love as a foundational principle for mm -hmm. the other work. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're they're fairly unparalleled in this regard. And they really put it at center, though it's not the only thing. And so again, in contrast to other intentional communities that might only take one aspect of what needs healing in our society, they've really taken on a holistic approach. What is jealousy and how do I get rid of it? <laughs> Free love is great. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what comes up for me is one, um, I mean, Tamara says it really explicitly. And again, not everybody has to agree with them, but they hold that jealousy does not belong to love. That's one of their ethics. And what they mean is, of course, it comes up, but what they're trying to say is that it's actually a completely different, it occupies a completely different, you know, area than love does. And then when you're able to actually go into it, like create the space where you can, you know, have the container and the support to, to go into the nuances, of course, often for many, it's fear of loss, um, as well as the, um, I mean, comparison to another, you know, how does one feel their own value, you know, in this situation and in a culture itself, which is, again, highly competitive, right? So there's so many elements there that um, within a different system, the question changes utterly.
So for example, I'll give you a real example. When I was in the community a number of years ago and there was a woman there who I was absolutely crushing hard, you know, the whole time within the love school. And on the um, final evening, we had a there was sort of a celebration to end the school. And we went out and we were kind of, you know, by that point we had a beautiful, friendly relationship. And, you know, I'd sort of spoken to the attraction and she was kind of like, okay, you know, I appreciate that. And anyway, at the end of it, you know, it was kind of the, end of the night and I was like, look, this is our final night together and I would love to spend this with you if you're a yes to that. And, you know, she deliberated and then you know, had to tell me that her, her choice in that moment was actually to go with this other man that was in the community. It's actually a really hot German fellow. And uh, <laughs> Did it feel better or worse that he was hot? I'm just curious because like, he's hot and you're like, he's hot, but I'm not. But then if he's like not hot, you're like, but he's not hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly right. All of a sudden, the value systems come back in again. Yeah. But in that moment, of course, it was just a feeling of um, being chosen over. Yeah, of course, my you know self-worth was like, oh, I'm just a fool. Or all those things came in. <laughs> um, and then, I, but I had to, of course, honor the choice and respect. And it was appreciative that, of course, she said yes to that, which she wanted to say yes to, that man. And then um, it was actually really interesting that, you know, a year passed. And I was in the community, uh, again, for the love school. And um, this this year, the the same woman wasn't there, but the fellow was, who was uh, at that point he was a resident of the community, and that because they spent the night together and you know did what they did, and uh, he came up to me actually kind of just on his own, and uh, sort of in the afternoon he's like, hey, um, you know you were you were that guy you know from last year, uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, Ian, <laughs> and he's like, um, this woman she she chose me over you, and he said that to me. And he wasn't saying like, haha, she chose me over you. He's like, yeah, she chose me over you. I'm like, she did. And he's like, that must have been hard. And again, it was like, yeah, actually it was hard. But the sincerity I felt in him and the true kind of extension of a, of a compassion that wasn't pity, you know, it was actually a deep feeling of male solidarity that I hadn't felt actually ever. I didn't even know that was a thing. That he was like, yeah, that must have, that must have hurt. And I was like, yeah. And it wasn't, I, this shouldn't have happened. It wasn't, yeah, she should have gone with you. It wasn't, meh, you know, too bad. It was actually just a deep moment of being, what was true was okay. And that we could meet in that place where, you know, it wasn't about him being better or worse or me being better. It was just what was true in that moment was held and, and honored. And solidarity was what made it happen and trust. This makes me think of one of the scenes that I watched from your movie that you sent and um, talking about solidarity in brotherhood mm -hmm. in service of the feminine mm -hmm. and that there's a male competitiveness. Um, if she likes me, then I've won, you know, and yeah. and we're, we're definitely socialized as men. I think more so than women or certainly in a different way than women to um, play status games with each other. And um, I think women have a different version of this, mm -hmm. um, you know, to speak broadly. Uh, and that there's this idea of coming together in service of women in a way that actually allows us to be in camaraderie and brotherhood with each other. Mm -hmm. That really resonates with me a lot. And I know that you've done a lot of work in masculinity and that's mm -hmm. where you and I know each other from. And I, um, it, it actually really is a nice tee up for, for something that I wanted to ask you, Ian, which mm -hmm. is I met you at Rainbow Serpent in Australia and you gave a talk that was called, um, love beyond fear. 
Is that the name of the talk? Probably or Love Free From Fear. Love Free From Fear. Yeah. Um, and I found that talk to have some really beautiful, very kind of actionable mm. points to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about someone listening at home, there's an invitation to create more community. There's an mm. invitation to understand Tamara more. Certainly an invitation to watch your film. Um, what about some of the lessons of Tamara that could be directly applicable to men and women in their interacting with the world we live in today? And I'm thinking about your talk as mm-hmm. some of the lessons that you had to share. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, I'm trying to leap back to that moment. And I, I can't specifically recall you know, the key pieces, but I, I do feel like in this moment what comes is, I mean, one, to recognize that um, you know, everything that comes up in relationships, whether or not it's, um, you know, a pair or a trio or beyond, that what comes up there is so um, big that it's very, it's too difficult to hold alone. And that in some sense, you know, we blame ourselves for the challenges so much of the time, or we blame the other, not realizing that, again, it lies in the structure and the ways that we're relating. And so to invite the larger container um, is crucial. But the other piece is, you know, in terms of real practice is, for me, it's this understanding of the term contact. Yeah, this what you did speak about this yeah. in the talk, and I remember this very clearly. Yeah, yeah con- like talking about being a man and deciding whether or not you want to approach a woman. Yeah, yeah. And for me, this is, uh, I mean, it's sort of a, it's, it's, a, it's a way, really. But I've come to, the more I've, I've begun to think about and practice and try to understand this idea of contact, um, is that, you know, whenever one relates with another, uh, whether it's you and yourself, you know, you and another human, you and non-human world, that there's, it's such a moment of profound possibility. And it asks actually a lot that for, you know, one to be able to, let's say just the example you used, so it's a man approaching a woman, um, that to one be really aware of like what's going on in him in that moment before the approach is made. Um, to be able to say like, wow, yeah, what am I, you know, am I just really in, in lust in this moment? Am I actually just feeling really alone? So I need to find status by, you know, going to talk to this woman. Um, am I genuinely curious, you know, who she is? Am I just, um, you know, angry at my partner back home? So I'm going to do it, you know, to spite her. Like there's so many things that could be going on. So to like be able to pause and take that moment and be like, yeah, what, what's actually going on for me right now? And then when the approach is made to in the contact to be genuinely willing to be curious about what is going on for them and you know where does it lead based on uh, is there an invitation is there you know a no is it you know whatever's happening to also be able to honor that and to make true contact with them allows then for the presence of truth i remember in your talk you observed your own story. And I know I want to just flag for a moment that we're being pretty heteronormative in this moment. And that's my fault. I'm the one who kind of teed it up. You're a man, you're talking to a woman. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, let me just flag that in the context of a heterosexual man speaking to approaching someone he presumes may be a potentially interested Mm -hmm. um, uh, woman that, that there's this idea of understanding the desire for contact. And then actually having an open space for who they are and what they want. And what you talked about in your talk was, observing that you are telling a story about this person. Uh You've never met them. You don't know anything about them. You've had kind of an idea of what they look like, but you could be running an entire story about who they are, what they want, what they mean to you. Oh, women always do this. And I'm, but if I try this and that there's something about trying to drop that story completely, first you understand why you're approaching 
drop the story completely, and then you're actually able to hold like, mm-hmm. what? Who are you? Yeah. What do you What do you want? What's happening here? And yeah. and I think that's a helpful process for anyone who wants to create an erotic invitation or any kind of intimate invitation for another mm-hmm. person. Yeah. I can even relate it to a non-sexual encounter in mm-hmm. that when I think about my baby and I think about making contact with my baby and I watch her, she's sometimes in her own world. She's engaging with something. Maybe she's holding something or you know, looking in a certain direction. And I see this all the time because I go to the grocery store and at least 10 people kind of like enter her sphere and like, ooh, what a cute baby, you know? And it's like, okay, great. Obviously, I love that. And at the same time, I feel like, wow, we adults are so used to just intruding upon the space of young people, especially babies, because they're, they're kind of like, they can't fend for themselves, right? But to actually come and make contact would to be would be to be aware like, okay, in this moment, she's actually like really engaging with this rock and she's figuring out the world in her, in her very own way. Mm. And so just to be aware, am I interrupting with my own agenda for contact with her? Or am I actually like, is she actually reaching for me and looking and, and ready to be embraced, you know? And so it can just be as simple as that. Um, Yeah. And I'd like to add actually for me, I mean, this whole question around consent, uh, you know, is quite lively, I think, in this culture and necessary. And what I feel like I've understood actually by, you know, being in Tamara is how, you know, there's a deeper layer than consent, actually. Like, there's a deeper layer that needs to be met for consent to be properly given. And for me, that's what contact is. It's the capacity actually to, um, you know, move at a pace and with uh, like a curiosity and an awareness of like what's actually you know true in this moment and then from there and again particularly say an ironic encounter if the goal is already existent before contact is made then you're out of contact does that make sense like if you approach an encounter and you're like this has to lead to sex which you know that's generally um like a criticism you know, if people, you know, they use Tinder or whatever, like there's ways in which, you know, people come front loaded with this idea that, okay, this has to get to sex or it has to be orgasm, for example. Uh, but it's a very different goal if you're coming from a place of contact and the goal is contact. So whatever happens, you're actually succeeding if the goal is contact because whatever comes up is actually what's true in that moment. Well, and that, and that really liberates this fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this I, I, I think uh, there are certain kinds of consent violations, um, certainly not the most egregious consent violations, but certainly kinds of consent violations that involve a fear of rejection, actually, on both sides. You know, um, for um, many men and male-identified people, people who are in the position of asserting themselves generally, but I think particularly, especially men, this idea of rejection is so much um, an, a, a referendum on identity. Yeah. And so therefore, if I'm not hearing a no, I'm not hearing a no. And then on the other side, the person who's being approached, there's so many reasons why she or they uh, uh, might not want to say no. They might want they might want sex, but later they might want a friendship. They might not want to hurt his feelings. They might they might be afraid that if mm-hmm. if if um, again I'm speaking in in a kind of gender binary. I just want to you know. What are you saying? They they you know I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm, <laughs> this is an area of growth for me. Um, so I think that this idea of contact, what's good, what's really good in this that I think is really helpful is 
many things and one of them is is your own relationship to yourself and what you're putting on the line when you approach someone so if you can check in with yourself and say actually i don't feel very good about myself and i'm on tinder because i want a match and if i get a match then it's going to tell me i'm good and Mm -hmm. good looking and hot and Mm -hmm. blah 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 and give me the gimme the gimme at least you know that at least you've checked in and you know that i mean that's a great first step to being like well is this really feeding me Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm This invites too again the what the power is of inviting others to be and this is a Tamara term embedment, E M B E D D, M E N T. This idea of being able to like take the step of actually like public pub, making public, but in a, in a right way, these kinds of you know longings, impulses, um, ideas. So for example, being able to check, um, you know, hey, I want to go talk to that person, you know, but you talk, you ask the friend first, and you say. Hey, like I feel like really attracted to that person. You know, can I go talk to them, or should I go talk to them? And they might say, "Okay, so what's going on for you right now?" You know, giving you the moment to pause and actually help you to be like, "Oh yeah, I'm just totally projecting on them right now," and actually, it's not a good idea for me to talk to them. Like how how much we get caught in our own you know programming and projections that it's actually really hard to do that. And so by embedding, and even like encounters, for example, in Tamara, it's very standard practice when you know, there's a connection made and maybe there is a a kind of erotic um, element to it that they want to explore. Let's say you're in a social environment. Um, It's very common where, you know, when the two people, let's say, go to leave, they would embed that they're about to leave. Like oftentimes, one of the most profound experiences I had was with the Tamarans, not in Tamara, it was at another conference, when I met this person and, you know, we were kind of flirting and connecting and we were in the social field with the whole group. And uh, at one point, you know, we're like, okay, you know, we want to take this to a more private area. So we go to leave, you know, kind of buy everybody, go to leave. And uh, one of the main Tamarans, who's actually the co-founder of the Love School, he's like, where are you guys going? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, <laughs> uh, elsewhere. And he's like, ah, but it, it seems like a beautiful connection has been made. Like, would you tell us about it? <laughs> right. And we're like, what? And there's like... Th- 30 people at this table right and i'm like what is happening and but he, he was he wasn't doing it to put me on the spot quote right but it was this automatic i think instinct of yeah you know like why keep it to yourself like this is also the gift of community in that way is that you know so much of like privatizing um one you know can maybe feel like it's like hoarding right um this you know life energy which is actually really beautiful to in a trust field to be able to speak about it and often you know in that moment to say what are you actually attracted to in this person in that moment and by sharing it with the group it's like you get to hear yourself so of course you can all of a sudden be aware am i playing games now am i just you know making stuff up or what's actually authentic right now and can i speak it to them witnessed Mm -hmm. by the group and they can give mirrors too and say oh lovely or say like "Eh, i think you're you know trying to put on a show or something like but it just creates a whole other dynamic and a safer one, by the way, because, mm-hmm. you know, if the two disappear and everybody's seen that it's been embedded, you know, and they know, oh, yeah, they've off. It's like the field knows now, oh, I should check on with so-and-so later. Or like, how was that? And, you know, bring it back into the fold later. Right. Which is, you know, we see the consequence of not doing that is me too. Uh-huh. It's essentially so much happening in private, in private and in the shadows. Um, and in this way, by embedding what's happening, you know, you don't live with all those 30 people around the table, mm-hmm. but that was a practice of being in community in that moment. Mm-hmm. So there are ways that we can act as communitarian beings in any moment by considering mm-hmm. that we at any given moment have impact on the whole. Mm-hmm. 
earlier you talked about a field of trust. Just now we we're talking about safety. And Julia, I'm interested in how it felt for you as a woman um, to be at Tamara and what, how the differences that you felt in being in that space versus in some of the other kind of public spaces in the world and, and what effect that had on you and potentially what, how that has changed the way you interact outside of Tamara. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's so much to say about that. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, a few little vignettes come to mind. I remember one time, it was my first year there, it was 2016, and it was hot, like it was a hot day. And I was wearing this long skirt with a, a belly shirt, like my midriff was showing. And it was a break during the, the Global Love School, and I'd gone to the bathroom, and in transit I had run into Sabina Lichtenfels, who's one of the co-founders of the whole project and also of the Global Love School. And she stopped me to be like, oh, do you know that this way you attract? <laughs> and I was like, what? What are she talking about? <laughs> you know? Do you know that this way you attract? You know? <laughs> I'm going to use that. And in that way, it was like, oh, my God, in this moment, all my stuff could potentially have come up of like being shamed, older woman, mom telling me it's not OK, you know, whatever. But actually what she was doing was bringing it into my awareness that I was an attractive woman in that moment. Mm. That that the way that I was dressing could potentially feel beautiful be received as beautiful or seductive or enticing, you know, and just to bring it into my awareness. So not in, not in the vein of like, oh yeah, you're going to be asking for, it, you know, but like just be aware. And so there was one piece um yeah, just one little experience. It's interesting to come as a woman into a field uh, of permission. I think the biggest experience, let me say this again. I think the strongest feeling I've had of being in that field again and again is that there's a lot of permission to be an erotic being. There's no pressure. There's no expectation to make sexual contact at all. But it, there is a field of permission just as in that way that I was acknowledged by the elder. Um, there's just space to explore and to express uh, longings, desires. And because I had had a little bit of time already at One Taste, I was familiar and, and felt comfortable in a field of community talking about sexuality and desire. So... I had a bit of a pre-existing, I'd been primed for that experience already. And yet there were still ways that I could come up against my own edge because the society I grew up in did not create that field of permission for me as a sexual being. Um, and certainly not in my family as I was growing up. So I often experienced, especially in my adolescence, um, just this feeling of needing to hide that I was a sexual being. And one of the really profound experiences for me happened, actually Ian and I did an interview with a young woman who grew up in the project named Naila. And she spoke about her story of having an initiation into her sexuality that was held by the community. So she literally named, I am ready to 
enter into the community and be seen as a sexual being, and maybe I want to have sex with a with a person I'm attracted to, invited that person to a sexual encounter, and then invited her mom, her dad, and the community to come and have a party while they go into a room and have sex. So just imagine that. Like, if I had that, it was such a stark contrast to my experience of needing to hide coming into my own sexual self. Um, and I realized that it's possible, right? So long as there is a field of, of adults that can create safety and permission, um, then it can be a good experience, especially for a young woman that's coming into herself and, and needs orientation on how to come, come into herself in that way. Um, so there was a healing moment for me just in receiving her story. Um, I'm thinking about how much more I want to share about. I mean, there's so many. I would say that something I've known about myself is that I I know that I'm a sexual being. I know I love sexuality. I love that it's expressed. I love it when people express that they are sexual beings. And in Tamara, I found that in that field, I was met with a lot of um, acceptance for my desire. And I actually had a lot of beautiful encounters with various people and experienced that there wasn't conflict between the people who knew about each other. There's actually a moment where I remember Ian and I were lovers at the time and there was a man in the global love school who decided to express his attraction to me. And so he used that principle of embedment and there was actually, I think it was Ian and a woman that he was attracted to, plus another man, and then this man expressing his attraction to me, but in front of all of them, and essentially saying he wanted to sleep with me. And Ian's standing there like, great. <laughs> and there's just- Without jealousy. <laughs> and it was a revolutionary. Just in the fact that these two men could stand side by side, be that that man could vulnerably express, wow, I really have feelings for you and I'd like to pursue them and do you feel the same? And for my current lover to stand and hear that and hear my response authentically, that was a big mm -hmm. deal, something I had not had before. Yeah, I can add that uh, so much of that was largely based on the that there was trust within the field and among the man or with the man. Like there was a level of a feeling of like, ah, yeah, he's a human being, he's a man like me. And that again, that, that competition wasn't there. And also because the way that it's held there, like these kinds of dynamics are normalized, right? In a way that it's like, it makes it more apparent when the kind of conditioned reactions that are in this culture, like there's a different normalization here, right? Where, you know, violence or upsetness because, you know, that so-and-so is, you know, with so-and-so. And that's more like, oh yeah, of course, that's the way it is. But there it's the exact opposite. It's like, it's, you're really able to see how the conditioned responses show up. And it's funny to see too about how the mirror image, um, when there's trust, it's really fascinating. For example, in this culture, probably the most um, egregious thing, let's say, that uh, say uh, partners can do, let's say, is to have one of them say, sleep with the best friend, for example. Right, that's upheld. That's the worst that you can possibly do. In Tamara, 
It's the exact it's opposite. It's the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Tamara, and Tamara, you're like, oh, I like, I love this person who's like, say, a really good friend, and I love my, you know, partner, lover, like, who, you know, I want to see them both flourish. They should love each other too. This is <laughs> called compersion, right? Is that the certainly a that's funny the, name for a great idea? Yeah, that's the polydynamic here. That's the word often. But again, it's so, you know, it's interesting to me too that now I draw a parallel to um, Christopher Ryan's book, Sex at Dawn, which many read, have, have read. In ref- reference, and if I recall, I mean, he you know he makes a comparison that um, humans are actually a lot less like chimpanzees, and a lot closer in kinship to bonobos. And um, bonobos use their you know connecting as as a bonding uh, practice amongst the the group of them. And so in Tamara, like when there's the trust field, you start to see this actually unfold. And I think Julia just gave a beautiful example when it's held in a trust field where, again, there's the competition sort of evaporates because you realize like everybody's still in the village. It's not a big fear of loss or they're going to leave me and I'm going to be alone. It's like, okay, this is what's you know happening now and things come up, but they're held in a different way. And it creates actually more trust when uh, when trust is there. To bring it on home, I want to come back to the first question here and the first idea, which is the healing of our relationship to the erotic, the healing of the genders as a political revolution Mm -hmm. and perhaps the foundational political revolution. And I am very accustomed to having conversations with hippies about Mm -hmm. how they're going to dance and free Tibet. You know, like where, you know, there was a whole festival that's like, we're all going to get together and dance and then Tibet will become free. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for the power of manifestation and intentions. But um, there seems to be a kind of woo woo disconnect between we're going to do this thing that that feels good, our healing, our thing, and it's changing the world. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could express to me what is the direct through line, if you can describe it succinctly, between this healing of gender relationships and the political revolution that this world needs. Mm-hmm. Well, one way to look at it is that when any one of us looks at our personal life, the issues that we're grappling with, the questions that we have, and then we zoom out any number of those could be a microcosm of the macrocosm that we're living in, right? So if we in a, if two people in a relationship who are enacting violent patterns take a decision to step out of that and start to commit themselves to a culture of peace between them, that's already one step in a political direction, If a country that is oppressing one gender rather than the other, and there are many who, for example, still oppress women far more than men, um, starts to look at, okay, well, on the political front lines, if it's a matter of going to war, we want everybody in the army. But when we're back home, like the woman has to cover her head and she can't flirt with anyone outside of her marriage and this kind of thing. If we start to deconstruct those political systems and understand, well, that's a, that's a personal issue that's now politicized, right? Because that's an issue of a personal relationship. And we need to look at how does that actually impact the society and the culture and the well-being of a people. Um, 
Who is it that's in the role of decision making? What are the layers of oppression that we're living under, whether it's being um, conditioned, whether our erotic bodies have been occupied by pornography, or whether our um, you know, systems have our food systems have been occupied by uh, Monsanto. It's not different. It's not different. So we start to think on the very political, the personal is the political. And I think when we start to look at that, we can take all the small steps that we need to, to start to dismantle those systems on a larger scale. Hmm. Um, I could add that, you know, I spent time in a previous film I worked on is called Occupy Love. And we did look at uh, the first year of the Occupy movement and, trying to track how that was part of the larger cultural wave that swept the globe in 2011. And like, what were the parts that seemed to actually align, even though the groups, you know, quote, didn't necessarily um, know each other uh, directly uh, at the outset, even though they wove together um, by the end. Um, And for me, what that proved was, um, I don't believe there is a top down quote solution to what, you know, what the type of change we need and the amount of time that we need to change it. I don't think it's possible. The system itself is incapable of responding at the scale that is necessary in which to create change. And so for me, it's like, well, what's the, other, you know, without resorting to like magical woo we're thinking. So what is the other theory of change? And for me, the theory of change is actually goes right back to this question of uh, eros and emergence. Because, um, you know, if you look out at life, like nobody's in charge of life. Nobody's in charge of like, okay, tree, grow there. You know, bee, go over there. Like there's a there's an intelligence that is just <laughs> unfolding, like that is embedded within life. You know, life wants to create more life. And so I think the great calamity that's, you know, occurred in, with our human systems is that we've basically fell out of contact with life. Because all indigenous cultures, you know, to say, are based on their very nature of being indigenous, are in contact with life. Like it's a call and response, this relationship to place and to the beings of place. And the great forgetting that's happened and the great kind of, you know, decoupling from the land and colonization and all that is a great forgetting. And so in some sense, you know, we don't have to apply a magnificent amount of force against, you know, quote, the bad people or the Trumps to to get the change to happen. But I do think we have to align with the innate intelligence of life which the only way we can do that is if we ourselves free the occupation of ourselves and tap back into our ability to tune in to that intelligence. And then we will be guided where we, where we need to be. Where we are most alive is where we need to be. Like that's the core of the evolution. And to liberate ourselves, we need the collective. I fully believe it cannot be done. Like the hero alone as, you know, able to kind of, transcend on their own, I think is done. And, you know, Thich Han said the next Buddha will be Sangha. And this is, um, Tamara's a model of what's possible when people commit to doing this work and then partnering with life. <laughs> well, as so often with experiences such as this, I will have to digest it somewhat before mm-hmm. I'm able to tell you whether transformation has occurred <laughs> and like all transformations it's the integration and practice of mm-hmm. it anyway mm-hmm. so i will say that i have been opened up to a lot of ideas and i really want to go to tamara now mm-hmm. 
So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, your film right now is in production and you are currently raising money to mm-hmm. complete the film. Mm-hmm. And the deadline to donate for this film to be completed is August twelfth. Mm-hmm. August twelfth. August twelfth. And you are hoping to raise how much more money to Well the grand total is fifty thousand. Yeah. And we're currently around ten. And uh so we've got about three weeks. And the URL if people want to check it out and contribute is loveschoolkickstarter.com. Okay. And we'll have that in the show notes, of course. Awesome. Um, and so if you were inspired by today's podcast and you want to help more people learn about Tamara in a much more dynamic way than our lovely voices, as dynamic as they were, um, you can go ahead and support and, um, and, and get involved. And um, both of my guests here have other films that mm-hmm. are worth watching. Um, I've seen some of them. Um, and we'll have those in the show notes too and more information on how you can follow Ian and Julia. So, mm-hmm. hey, thank you so much for thank talking so to much. me today. Um, and uh, I, yeah, it's one of those things where like, did my paradigm shift? <laughs> Did it though? You, you have to wait for it. It never happens in the moment, right? I'm yeah. an emergent, it's only in retrospect. I'm an emergent property of a desire to have paradigm shift. You might have to sleep on it. I think I'm going to sleep on it. Sleep with it. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Life is a Festival podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes and leaving us a review letting us know what you thought. Or you can share it with your friends. Please visit eamonarmstrong.com, that's E-A-M-O-N-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G.com for more content about festival culture and personal growth. Have a great week. So how'd the podcast go? I thought it was pretty juicy. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with how we circled around some really good concepts and that was a fun way to end i feel the call to give shout out to our third co-director john wolfstone oh yeah yeah let's give a shout out to john mm-hmm. um you want to tell me a little bit about john so that we have him john is very sad that he could not be here to meet you today <laughs> he was very much feeling like you two have something for each other because he mm. he wants to give you his wild man and he wants your fabulous is what he said yep. Oh, (laughs) I didn't realize that I was going to get something. (laughs) Come on now. I'd love to meet him. Yeah, he's Um, very excited. And he's a great guy. mm -hmm. Awesome. None other like him. Integral part of the team. Yeah. Well, John, we miss you. We hope that we did justice to Mm -hmm. your aspect of this vision Mm -hmm. and hope we raise a lot of money for this wonderful film that's being made. Anything we missed? Anything that we dropped? Anything that you feel like, damn, we didn't talk about the troll that lives under the Tamara Bridge or I don't know, whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me think. Yeah. I mean, nothing covered a lot. Nothing jumps out too much. Um... Yeah. Or maybe maybe we could just say the why this is so taboo. Yeah. Why is it so taboo? Hmm. Why is it so taboo? But why is it so taboo? This subject matter is so taboo in this culture because, again, it touches those deepest places where I think so many feel um, constricted, confined, shamed, judged, you know, all of those places that if you begin to open up the conversation, 
then it's like there's because of the pain that's there often or the un you know unfelt um uh deeper layers it can often come out and you become the target of those projections so like we've found in again stirring this conversation often we can get a lot of um you know judgment around these things because you know it's coming from a culture itself which is so deeply repressed in these subjects of sexuality you know partnership love you know, and I can tell you also that I live in community. As you saw here, there's multiple houses and multiple families. And in my experience, um, on on a hard day, sometimes I'm like, fuck it. I just want to be in a nuclear family because that is so much easier, you mm-hmm. know, just to have to respond to one other person and not involve everybody else in the decision making would be so much simpler. And on a good day, I'm really committed that living in this way is my activism Mm -hmm. because I have to come out of my patterns of privacy and isolation. And I have to think about sharing resources with people and sharing space and who do I become when I share space and how considerate and responsible am I? And Mm. that matters in the grand scheme of things when we're sharing this planet. So I feel like Mm. there's just to say not to evangelize any one way and to say that it's not that easy to go to the neighbor and be like, okay, actually, who are you? And actually, do I like you? <laughs> and do we have the same views? And if not, do I dare to really go into it with you? So it's hard. I mean, I'd say yes. And, you know, I think we're at a precipice here collectively, globally, where, again, the 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 preference whether or not to do it, I think is rapidly dwindling. And that, you know, the sooner that we can begin to make these shifts, um, which are scary in that sense, because, you know, again, hoarding and, you know, controlling resource and private property and all these things completely make sense in a system, which is um, based on this, this existential fear that, you know, you will not be okay unless you can control. Uh, and the more that we can step out and, but step out in a way that begins to build trust, you know, with others in a meaningful way, can relax that grip you know, on needing to control and like needing resource and needing all this private space, which again is what collectively is creating the biosphere collapse on this planet. Mm-hmm. The stakes are high. Mm-hmm. Get good with what gets you off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being cheeky. <laughs> Obviously, it's a much bigger deal. But, you know, like let's let's really look at healing the erotic and finding ways to bring some of these lessons into our daily lives and build more of these communities. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you.